All right, Seven Mile Road, welcome to another one of our Anatomy of a Sermon podcasts. We are doing these periodically to help you know how do I listen well to gospel preaching. One of God's essential, the essential means of His grace to us is that we get to hear the Word of God proclaimed to us. When we do that, we are not passive and half checked out. We are fully engaged, giving all of our attention to what God would have to say to us. He speaks through sinful instruments, through pastors who are weak, and He does that for His reasons and for His glory. And so what we do week after week after week is humble ourselves to quiet our mouths and hearts and to listen and to be responsive to it. And we're trying to build a culture in a church where we take this seriously and where the men who lead us in teaching and exercising authority over the church from that pulpit and do that hard work are doing it well. And so part of what these podcasts are is accountability for you so that you would know, hey, this is what it looks like for us to get ready to speak to you, and also help for you so that you would know, oh, here's how I can be listening better and having my heart changed, my mind changed, my life changed, and this world changed through the proclamation of the gospel. That is ground zero for our ministry, the air war of the gospel preached on the Lord's Day over and over and over and over again, and the incredibly divine work that is accomplished there. All right, so this past Sunday, we're preaching through the biblical book of Nehemiah, this wild memoir of his work of leading the people to rebuild the wall and the gates of the city of God so that city would be safe and secure, so that the people could thrive, the law could be reestablished, the gospel could be advanced in that place. It was the fifth chapter this week. Last time, Matt McCann preached, and he talked about this scandal of people extorting their brothers and sisters, taking advantage of them while they were hustling on the work because of some difficult financial times. And we said it is the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end that you do not do that. And so Nehemiah, masculine, straight, direct, holy, on fire for God, said, this stops now. And beautifully, the people responded to that. This week, we were hitting the text in his memoir where he says, hey, a couple other things that I wanted to write in here. Um, I didn't behave that way. And he's got two big thoughts that he gives to us. The first one being that he did not take the food allowance that he was entitled to because he felt that would be totally wrong because the food allowance comes on the backs of the people and they had just gotten back from exile and were rebuilding their lives in Judah and he was not going to make their financial situation any harder than it was. And that's beautiful in itself and we could have stopped there and made application. But then we realized that it, it didn't stop there for him, that it wasn't just a negative obedience I did not take from the people, but he just blew us away with this account of how he gave to the people and opened his table at his expense to feed people every day for 12 years. And we were just astounded at that. So my job with this sermon was to tell this story and to show the beauty of it and the root of it, and also 
show it to be a, a gospel implication for what it means to live as sons or daughters of God, to be this way. And so uh, we get real nervous about moralistic preaching nowadays. But we say to people, hey, sometimes we are pressing with you the gospel itself. We do that a lot. Oh, man, we need to hear that over and over again. And sometimes we are pressing with you implications of the gospel. And so throughout the book of Nehemiah, we're seeing, hey, if someone was on fire for God, for the advance of his glory in this world, what does that life look like? What are the implications? And so this would be one where from the inside out of the gospel, I would be trying to pull out an implication for living for our people. All right, so that's the big idea of the text. All the sermon prep uh, has to be the same. So for me, that includes prayer, asking God for mercy and help and clarity of mind so that I might speak clearly, asking God for guts so that I might speak boldly, asking God that I would not be shrugging my shoulders and uh, subjunctive clause in all of my statements like ending on a question, but that I would just speak fearlessly the truth of God, asking Him that your hearts would be open and humble and ready to receive, and that uh, this supernatural thing that he can accomplish in this sacred engagement of a pastor with his people would be done again, would he do that? Um, If texts are shorter, I, I work hard if I can to memorize them, and if they're a little bit longer like this week's, I will make sure that in my prep I sit down with a pen, a journal, and the Bible, and write out the text that I need to preach from, saying it as I write it, thinking on it, circling big phrases. So those two things are a part of my prep. I've also known for months that I'm going to have to deal with this text with our people, and so have been ramping up to be ready to press into it. And of course, always saying, I got to say this in a way that a Bostonian would be like, hey, whether I agree with you or not, I know what you were saying. It, it was not unclear. You didn't use crazy Christianese Bible words. You helped it make sense to me. I recently read a book called The Seven Laws of Teaching. It was a, a republish of an, an old guy's book, and it was awesome. So helpful. And one of the laws is, hey, you can't, all new learning builds on old learning. That's my paraphrase. Or there's no way for you to understand something new if it is not connected to something that I already know. That's true in preaching too. This is why I work really hard to use illustrations and analogies and stories so that you are able to go, oh, I get that. And so now I can get these words of scripture. And so sometimes at three in the morning, (laughs) sometimes whenever I'm, I'm praying and saying, Father, help me know how I can relate this to something a Bostonian would get so that the truth of the gospel would land on them. All right, so all that in the background, then you got to sit down and say, here we go, I'm putting together a sermon, and i got to build this in some way that in 30 or so minutes I can take my brothers and sisters on a ride and help them see the glory of Christ, the goodness of God's truth, and have their hearts be moved to obedience and faith. All right, some weeks in prayer, I'm like, you know, before I say a word, there's something I want to address with our people. So I don't know why, but this week 
in prayer for our people and getting ready to preach, I just felt like sometimes people roll into church and they are undone from their week. They barely scraped, crawled in that front door, and uh, they need to know the warmth and the tenderness of God the Father for them in the gospel. So we build that into our liturgy, but sometimes you also just need a pastor to look at you and say, hey, I love you. The gospel's true. God is for you. I know this life can be a disaster, and we are buffeted on every side by the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly. But our future is incredibly bright and perfectly secure, and God did not promise us our best life right now. He didn't do it. It's through many trials and troubles and difficulties that we get to the kingdom of God. And so I get it, but you can sit up straight. You can put your eyes on me. God is for you. Even in this moment, he's going to speak to you through his word. And so this is one of the weeks where I just started with a very simple, quick gospel exhortation for our people. Um, then I stepped into the sermon. I don't know, don't know if I would do this again, but this little part, I just, I've been so afraid that they're not going to like Nehemiah because he is so not a soft American man. And that they would just be like, eh, I'm checking out on this book. I don't like this guy. He's too gruff. He's too straightforward. Um, that, that has scared me. I want our people to love their brother, Nehemiah. And so I addressed that and told them, if you're having a hard time with him so far, just rolling into town and saying, we're getting to work, no nonsense, then you're going to love him today because his warmth, his generosity, his hospitality are going to be on full display. So I set up that little frame for them. I don't know if I'd use those minutes that same way, but that's what I did. All right, so then I prayed and then stepped into the sermon itself, open with a question. So at the center of this text is Nehemiah's open table. And one of my great dreams for this sermon would be that our people would have begun thinking differently about their table. Is it open? Is it crowded? Is it, is it a tool for gospel advance? So here's how I decided to start this sermon, with a question, asking them, what do they see as the best or the most important or the most gospel-advancing piece of furniture in their home? And I worked some potential answers, and I landed on uh, one of the best, if not the best biblical answer to that question is your table. Your table can become an incredible force for gospel advance. So I set that up at the beginning to have them be thinking about that and prep them to say, that's what we're going to see in the story, that Nehemiah had a table and it was open and it was used by tons of people all the time at great expense to Nehemiah, and he was good with it because this is how the, the people of God are called to live. All right, then I always want to work the words of Scripture themselves. And so up on our screen, I put each of the verses of this text and walked through it reminded them of the context, showed them where it says, hey, for 12 years, I did not eat the food allowance of the king. Then I had to jump in and say, what is a food allowance? Why would it be available to Nehemiah as the governor? What is that equated to in Boston culture? Help them understand that. And so normally we go, hey, if you got an allowance, you get to use it. You're allowed to. Duh, it's called an allowance. But for some reason, Nehemiah would not do it. 
And then in the next verse, we see that this is a really big deal because the governors who had come before him did it. They were happy to use that allowance, even though it was a great burden on the people. And Nehemiah was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not adding any burdens to this people. I'm not going to take advantage of something that technically I would be morally appropriate to out of my fear for God. These are his people. And my love for the people, they are God's people. So we did those words, and that would have been enough right there. How cool is that? How holy? How instructive for us? But then something absolutely stunning happens in the text. Nehemiah says the word moreover. And remember, God inspired every single word of Scripture. And so that word moreover is so beautifully saying, but there's even more here. I, I didn't stop there. And then he says, at my table. And rhetorically, I paused there, and I think I said it three more times, emphasizing each of the three words, at my table, at my table, at my table, to make sure that they let the weight of those words land on them. And then he says, there was hundreds of people every single day welcomed to my table. And then he moves to explaining um, that that was not only not on his allowance, that it was out of his own pocket. And he says, what was prepared was at my expense. Same thing there. Those three words just became beautiful to us this Sunday. At my expense. So Nehemiah has done something beautiful here. He has ratcheted this up and said, not only did I not take from the people, but I gave. And then I wanted to help them feel that that is really the heart of all gospel-centered obedience. It is never just, okay, I did the minimum, or I didn't break the law. It is always, I wanted to fulfill to the nth degree the spirit of the law. I used an illustration of Zacchaeus who not only restored to all those he had stolen what the law required, but then he blows this room away when he says, and I'm also giving half of my wealth to the poorest of the people. Whoa. He didn't have to do that part, but his heart was alive to God. Same thing with Nehemiah. Not only did he not take the allowance, but he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. To try and make sense of the cost to himself, I used one analogy of a tiny little bit of food. I went and ordered a number one at White Castle, and the lady gave me one hamburger the size of a Reese's peanut butter cup. That is not the heart of Nehemiah. And then I connected it to my experience of of, uh, my mother-in-law, who is the most beautiful Italian woman you've ever met in your life, who would feed dozens of people. And everybody could have had a wheelbarrow of a doggy bag on the way home and said that was the spirit of Nehemiah. And it was at his table and at expense to himself. And I wanted our people to feel the glory in, in what Nehemiah had done. He would not take the allowance, but he would give out of his pocket. All right, then I wanted to land the plane and say, what about us? So we are not eunuchs. We are not um, like Nehemiah most likely was. We are not governors. We don't have an expectation in this sense that our table would be open to 
ambassadors and officials and that kind of a thing. So we're also not probably as wealthy as Nehemiah was, and so don't have to be serving uh, lobster dinners six nights a week, none of those things, but just driving to our heart and saying, is there anything in Nehemiah in us? Do we ever say, at my table, at my expense, people were loved and people were gospeled? And then I wanted to affirm our church because many of them have lived this way. And so uh, super tight community is one of our absolute distinctives, which means knowing people's names and stories and being in their homes. And so I was able to rattle off a whole bunch of folks who I have seen live like Nehemiah, open their table at their expense so that I and my family could be loved and gospel. In other words, you can do this. You have done this. And remind them that this is one of the ways that the gospel will advance through the mission of this church. Hopefully there's a list of 10 ways that's happening, but one is people in our church saying, at my table, at my expense, people were loved and the gospel was advanced. And then um, suggested that if they're not immediately going, yeah, that is happening with me, that they would lean in and think on some of the reasons why. Not. Why not? And so just peppered them with a few questions, ideas of why that could be. Would love if they personally thought on it or chopped this up with their gospel community to say, hey, the degree to which my wallet, fridge, home, table are not open, uh, what's going on there? And there can be totally legitimate reasons for that, especially in different seasons of life. But there can be totally bogus ridiculous, silly, faithless reasons for that. And those are the ones that we want to punch in the mouth and get rid of. So there is truth, there is application, there is some handles to think on that so they might leave knowing what changes in my life if these words are true. And then I chose at the end of this sermon to super land the plane with Christ. So I know that Christ-centered preaching is a big theme in our day. Praise God for that. I know people freak out if every single sermon ever doesn't completely explicitly have some kind of absolute tie to Christ. And I'm always like, ah, chill out on that a little bit. Not every single sermon has to get there in an explicit way. Take the long game approach to preaching. There'll be Sunday, some Sundays when you're just doing something different. Your liturgy should always be surrounding the preaching with Christ's centrality, and you should stick near the shore of Christ. But there may be some Sundays when you're swimming out by, you know, that rope that they have way at the end before you're going to get torn up by the sharks. It's okay to be out by that rope. Um, This Sunday happened to be a Sunday where the connection to Christ is just so essential and so beautiful and so pow that I didn't want to miss it. So I went a little longer and said, does everyone understand this is not just Nehemiah? We live this way. He lived this way because God is this way. And God incarnate, Christ, was this way. And reminded them about how in his Last Supper, Jesus secured a table and had that table open to sit with his disciples and love them. And reminded them that Christ has invited us to a table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
and we're going to be sitting together with him at a table in the age to come, and he's going to serve us. And that never has a table been opened ever, ever at more expense to someone than that table. And reminded them that every Sunday we come to a table, the bread and the cup, taking the participating in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper together. And Christ has opened this table for us at the front of this church, and he has invited us here, and he has done so at infinite cost to himself. And so every one of those days for 12 years that Nehemiah opened his table, Christ was in view. And every time any of us ever opens our table with our wife, with our immediate family, with friends, with neighbors, with the poor, we are walking in the footsteps of Christ. And so there is nothing in our life that does not issue from the beauty, the truth, the goodness, the reality, the power of the gospel. And you want to make sure people can see and feel that. And so as a pastor, I hope that people leave and when they get home, they look at their table and go, oh shoot, what an opportunity to see the gospel advanced, to live like the Lord lived, and to love and welcome people at my expense into relationship, into meals, into a space where they can be valued and seen. Man, that would be a huge delight. All right, so that's an anatomy of a sermon, how you think through hearing this one, maybe shaped from some of my thoughts. And now it's a Tuesday, and I'm thinking hard on, okay, the next part of this story, Nehemiah is slandered and falsely accused and basically blackmailed. And how can I help my people know that this road of obedience to Christ is going to be attended with all kinds of difficulties, even maybe being falsely accused and slandered. Uh, What do we see in Nehemiah's response? How can we own that in the life of our church? And I'll go through this whole exercise again. All right, that's Anatomy of Servant. Praise God for his grace to us in it. And uh, we'll do another one sometime. All right.